Welcome to the Guidelines Podcast. The following is a discussion with Zandre Kutsia about where data and product design meet. Enjoy. Firstly, welcome to Guidelines. Zandra, it's so nice to finally meet you. Before we get into it, could you just tell us a bit about who you are? Sure. Um, yeah, so my name is Zandre. Uh, I've been working as a product designer for around six years now. Um, I come from kind of a, a long line of uh, startups, um, especially sort of very small startups, maybe five to 20 people. Um, yeah, and kind of just had a, had a trial by fire. Um, I didn't officially study design um, coming out of high school. I studied music, uh, which is an interesting story in itself. Uh, but I ended mm. up um, kind of using my, my kind of creative talents to serve a few freelance clients. And that kind of you know, kick-started a, a career in uh, a UX and, and, and today product design. Okay. And what, what, what actually attracted, what brought you to design from music? Yeah, so so actually, what happened was I, I was in high school and I I had always been a fan of animation specifically uh, and you know art and sketching and drawing and I had a group of friends who were all dead set on on being designers and and so I kind of fell into this uh, this habit of drawing with them and uh, and really exploring creative arts um, but I had always been playing music since since I could remember so you know I was dead set I was going to be a musician um, and kind of as I as I came out of university studying um, studying jazz and, and audio post production. Um, I, I ended up not being able to find a, a job as easily. Um, and then I kind of just fell back on the only talents I had, which was, you know, I knew how to animate things and I, and I knew how to design things. Uh, and then that kind of um, triggered, uh, triggered um, going into kind of a UI visual design aspect um, with some of the clients kind of, um, you know, really liking the, the UI I was bringing to the table. And then one of the clients just said, look, you know, come work for us full time. Uh, you know, you'll work on the UI uh, for the apps that we build for our clients. And that's kind of, I fell into it. And uh, since then I've enjoyed it. And I, and I, and I really, um, I think it's a, it's a great place to be. That's cool. I love hearing people's introductions to the world of UX. I think it's very often, it's not a linear path. And in fact, that non-linear path actually makes you a better rounded designer because you're not just bringing in that one perspective. You're bringing in the perspective of your background, which is art into it. But then you went from art, I don't know, I can see on your LinkedIn that, you, that you've done a lot of studying of, of data and mathematics. Could you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so, so this actually, I think this was, a, you know, this was part of that trial by fire I was talking about. You know, as, a, um, as a designer in a startup, there's not a lot of safety nets around. Um, you don't really have uh, the ability to be wrong, if I, can, if I can put it that way, right? So you know, mm. as, I, as I was exploring uh, um, you know, UI design, you start thinking about like, okay, but, you know, I want to know more about what, what's working, what's not working, and then you naturally progress to research, right? And that's kind of the next jump for any designer, I think, uh, is really digging into how to do good research and, um, and those kind of things. And then, and then you start, you know, thinking about like, okay, well, you know, how do I think about success? And that kind of leads you to data science, um, well, leads you to statistics. And, you know, today's uh, statisticians, they all need to code, they all need to be able to use R and, and Python to, to build models. So um, you know you end up you end up in, in a bit of a statistics realm, but I think the the main thing here is kind of uh, kind of going back to your your question. There's I met a uh, a very good friend of mine, Louise De Beer, who's uh, who was head of um, data science at Lead Home, and um, and she would she would challenge me with these these kind of um, she'd say okay well you know. Um, like how did you how did you think about that problem like how how are you answering that and how how did you come to that that data set you're using 
why are you choosing those numbers how are you slicing it like and she she kind of challenged me a lot taught me uh, a lot about uh, data and statistics and so much so that i decided you know what um, I don't have a formal education uh, within uh, within my field, and it, it doesn't really make sense after six years to study design. So let's go into something uh, interesting uh, and something that I love as well, which is mathematics uh, and statistics, and, and obviously data, data science as well. Um, you, I'd like, I'd love to dig into the the data thing in a bit because I think it's flipping interesting. But what I'd like to actually take a step back and and go into the decision that you made in your career path. Now you you went into a company and you worked, started working as a UI designer, uh, yeah. and you stayed in startups. And so, from what I understood, you you sort of moved around within the startup scene. Uh, what? Yeah. Why did you make that decision? Uh, I'm sure you could have had the opportunity to move to move into larger corporate teams. What's kept you yeah. in the startup world? Yeah. So I guess you know the, I guess there's two reasons. So in the early days, it was basically just kind of out of necessity. You know. Um, Big big corporates often needed, you know, they want to see a bachelor's degree in you know X, and then you you go through the filter of hiring, and then you even get to, you know, being your resume being looked at. So I think it was partially that, but I guess when I got mm. used to the rhythm of startups and the speed at, at which things were happening, um, I kind of enjoyed wearing lots of hats, so not just being in the pixels and and designing, uh, you know what button, what drop down, wireframes, research. I kind of liked being involved in a bit of the strategic side. You know, you start touching on that. Um, you know, if you if you start working within squads, you, you're looking at, you know, a little bit of project management, a little bit of leadership that you're going to have to exercise. You start talking to stakeholders. You get really good close contact to, you know, the C-suite individuals. You start learning a little bit about business. So I think that's really what a startup cultivates is, is people fill whichever gap the startup needs at that point. And that it upskills you and makes you super well-rounded, um, as you mentioned before, uh, when when coming to your approach to design and your approach to building products. That's cool. Yeah, I don't think you would have actually had the opportunity to move from UI specifically into research. I think that often working large companies, there's pros and cons for both, but you'll become a real specialist in one area. And as you're saying, being in a startup actually affords you the ability to be able to spread your wings a bit and uh, expand your skill set. So I think it's cool that you use that to move into data science. Um, just on a side note, I, I know Caleb Shavala. He's so cool. In, in, in 2017, I actually asked him out to a cup of coffee and he, he agreed. And we had a long conversation outside of Starbucks about design and that kind of thing. So I think it's cool that you know him. Yeah, we, we sat next to each other at Lead Home and we, um, we did a, a thousand user tests together um, yeah, so we, we worked really close together. He was part of one squad. I was part of a different squad, but we would, um, yeah, we'd be talking all day and um, quite, quite philosophically, I would add, and um, we, we talked a lot about yeah. art. We <laughs> talked a lot about, you know, um, what does it mean for art to be good? Um, in a post, you know, just talking about design, you know, we were often talking about weird philosophical ideas very often. <laughs> what does it mean for art to be good, Sandra? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> Five hours later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, let's not derail the conversation. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I think uh, I've heard a bit about Lead Home and I read that, obviously, your recent blog post, which we'll link in the show notes. It sounds like Lead Home was a really hot um, and um, vibrant scene that you were working in right there. Yeah. Uh, how long, were, yeah, how long were you at Lead Home? Yeah, so I was about uh, I was there for about two years. So um, I actually chose to leave just because of um, the visa thing that I'm doing now. So I've uh, I applied for a visa called um, the Tech Nation visa, 
which is in the UK. Okay. Uh, it focuses specifically on on, on tech individuals. Um, yeah, so that came through in January, um, which meant I, I I had to leave. But definitely one of the top top companies in terms of culture and just um, you know cutting edge, uh, I guess. Uh, technical operational ways of work, those kind of things, um, really, really pushing the boundaries, which is great. Mm. I'd love to get into the the scene in London, but I think we should move on to the to the meat of the to the meat of this topic, and that's where data and product design meet. And I think the first question I have for you is to ask you to explain what it means to use data within design and why it is so important to do so. This question is interesting, and I'm going to I'm going to segue a little bit. Um, and I'm just going to say, like, I, I think doctors are amazing. Um, so we'll start there. Um, so you know, if you think about if you think about what a doctor does is, you know, you walk into their their um, you walk into their office. The office often very suave. I, I don't know why doctors are very suave. Leather um, chairs. Exactly. And um, and then they and then they kind of like you know they check your ears. You know they they feel your temperature. They maybe you know push on your ribs a little bit. They go you know does that hurt? And then they go. Then you go back to their desk, and then they go. You know, take these three pills, and you know, drink this once a day. Uh, and then you go home, and you do that, and then you know, <laughs> you get better. Um, and and I think that concept is so interesting that really, really nailing the cause and effect relationship between knowledge and execution. Right, being able to go like, oh, I see what is wrong, and I'm doing something, and then you know, something else happened. Um, and I and I think. When I when I think about doctors and then I and I, I kind of compare that to product designers, um, it's not often the same. You know, we don't often go and and sit sit down and go, ah, I see what the problem is. You know, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then you know, I re I release the, the I push the new feature, and then boom, you know, the problem's solved. Um, and I guess that's kind of where that's kind of where it started for me, which was like, why is it not like that? You know, why can't we do that? Why can't you know we we know about Gestalt principles and we know about um, you know the psychological principles behind design. Um, you know we have we have all these tools to our disposal, but yet you know we're not we're not actually looking at such a strong cause and effect relationship between um, I did this thing and then I fixed the thing that I was trying to fix in the first place. That predictive, that being right, that correctness uh, is not quite there. So so I guess for 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 data and design, and and this is kind of what I came to is that if you if you Describe the problem correctly from a data perspective. It is often easier for you to to get that cause and effect um, feeling right. So um, when I talk mm. about data and design, I'm talking about saying, how do you describe the solution that you have made as a form of numbers, and then the cause and effect relationship between the change that you made and the thing that actually happened. That those two as a as a set of numbers as well, and then being able to uh, to to bring them together. Uh, and then describe your change uh, in a good way. So when I say data, I mean statistics. I mean, um, you know, uh, bringing in uh, your analytics in a way that, that tells you whether you've solved the problem or not. I think that's one of the most important tools within a designer's toolkit is being able to show that golden thread. So it's not just being able to create the data, but as you're saying, it's being able to actually show uh, the, the output, the effects, of changes within your design and be able to show that to stakeholders. It's something I'd like to move into along with that. I think you really positioned this very nicely. Um, in, in this article that you wrote, Frameworks to Define Your Products, you, you spoke about external and internal metrics. How does that relate to the point you just made? Yeah, so so 
I guess this was this was a, a first stab at um, trying to trying to bring together um, you know at lead home it was specifically business metrics that we were looking at um, so mm. you know working where I am today it's it's maybe a little bit more product metrics and we'll, we might talk about that a bit bit later but um, at lead home we, we had these business metrics to solve so things like um, the turnaround time for a call center agent, um, you know, taking a call from a customer, that is that is not something that lives within you know Google Analytics or you know um, Mixpanel. That is something that lives in a database somewhere that we could track. Um, and you then have to say, well, if I put this thing on the call center agent's interface, it will reduce their turnaround time. And and making those jumps was really difficult. And I found that a lot of these big metrics, such as turnaround time, they were often so stubborn. Um, you'd, you'd be like, oh, you know, this should, this, should do the, this should do the trick. And then you release your product and then, you know, <laughs> you end up getting maybe a 1% bump in, in whatever you're doing. Um, and mm. so I, so I kind of drove a, a, a wedge between these two and said, okay, well, maybe, maybe I should stop looking this, like this as... I am trying to move this needle and that is it. Maybe it's, there's a different way of looking at this to say, well, I'm doing something that I have control over and I'm trying to affect something through that thing that I have control over. So internal and external. External being some big business metric. It might be things like, um, you know, how quickly a property sells or, you know, um, how quickly a call center agent turns around a, um, a specific, a specific um uh, call with a with a customer. Those those are big business metrics, which which are which are maybe correlated with someone using a specific feature, which you can call an internal metric. So you could say, if if I add this to the the agent's dashboard, and if they engage with it, if that engagement goes up, then the external metric, and you know, which might be turnaround time, should go down. So that relationship is something that you're trying to to manage. So um, so that's essentially the idea. Uh, is this idea of internal metrics, external metrics, and the relationship between them, um, if that makes sense. Makes total sense. So it sounds like external metrics are things that are being defined by the business. In other words, you're almost like your, your other stakeholders on your team. The, and those are determined by, the needs of the, determined by the needs of the business and the needs of the overall product. How would you go about identifying those external metrics from your either from getting them from your stakeholders or from mm -hmm. like if the stakeholders can't give it to you how would you go about figuring what those external metrics are definitely so so what i'm going to do is uh, i just want to make a quick distinction before we go go any further into this um so okay what we're, what we're kind of talking about here is that you know you have these business objectives and we know from kind of the movement in design that a lot of a lot of companies are pivoting towards user-centered and i kind of want to bring that in just for a second right so if you think about a user problem, if you describe a user problem, a user problem is not, um, you know, turnaround time in a call center. A user problem is not, um, you know, uh, how quickly a, a, a property sells. That It might be, it might be, I would like, how might we help users uh, sell their properties faster? That is, that could be a user problem. So what, what the golden, the real, real golden combination here is, um, is that, you have these business metrics, you know, we can call them external metrics as well, because they often fall right outside of the direct influence that we have within our realm. And then you have these, uh, these kind of human metrics, which is like, I want this, the business wants this. And putting those two together is often which gives you, you know, your, your, um, 
your project. It's saying that if I solve this human problem, it might solve this this, this business problem. And then your internal metric yeah. is the thing that you can you can directly uh, sort of affect um, yourself. So choosing an external metric is is as simple as saying, well, is there a metric that if we if we solve this business uh, this human problem that might that might move this business business metric? So if you if you combine those two, that's that's kind of how I think it should be chosen. But often you will have you know um, kind of a top down approach where maybe the business wants to move in a specific direction, which then kind of trickles down that business metric. So I would say the best way of choosing it is, is taking a human problem and taking a business problem and marrying them and saying you know, this is what I want to solve for this business problem, which is expressed as a metric, and this human problem, which is expressed as um, the, a pain that a, a user is having. Okay, so when you when you marry this human problem with this business problem, you end up having you end up being able to solve uh, an ex, an external uh, basically you're saying are external metrics, okay? And then yeah, your what, internal what, metric, yeah, okay. No, sorry, sorry, go on. <laughs> uh, no, cool. And then there your internal metrics are kind of like the little things that you tweak to influence those the human the human metric and the the business metric. Yes. So, so I think what, what, we're, what we want to do is we always want to design for a human problem. But by solving that yes. human problem, we want to make sure that we're moving the business metric. So what you might do is you might look first, right? So you might say, um, okay, uh, you know, we want to improve the, let's take the, the example there, the, um, the speed at which a property sells, right? And we, we consider yeah. that an external metric because it's not only us that can affect that. You know, that's the real estate agent, that's the market, that's all, all sorts of things that's pushing on that on that number. Um, and then we yeah. say, well, you know, um, our users they also they also want the um, the um, their house to sell quicker because maybe a quicker turnaround time allows them to um, to to plan better and and not be kind of dragging this process out. Um, so that's a good example where the, the human problem and the business problem are, um, are, are the same because for the business to, to have more throughput with properties is better because we can, it's, it's more capacity. Yeah. But also for people, it's mm-hmm. better because they, they, want, they want that kind of speed. So you might say, okay, well, um, you know, maybe if we take one slice out of this, this property process that, um, and we look at the data, so we go, hey, this, this, this part of the process is taking you know, 12 days. That that seems a lot, and um, that seems quite quite significant. So let's take that as our internal metric. So let's say the first part of the process is taking twelve days. So let's put that on the table and say we can increase this process by either automating a specific part or maybe you know visualizing the data in a way that is easily accessible by the agents. So meaning they can move faster than enough to look for it. And we're going to really look for those time those time bottlenecks in this first part. So we're not saying hey this project we're going to do is going to you know, um, just tackle the whole metric at, all at once. We're saying, let's define an internal metric for this sprint, or you know, if you're if you're doing design sprints, potentially that's a that's a good um, you know, starting point for it. And we're saying we're just going to focus on the small one, the one that we know we can fix. Um, and then you 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 release something and you move your internal metric and you go like, yeah, success. And then you watch your external metric and you go like, okay, you know, are we making a difference here? So that that's kind of how I, how I'm thinking about it. Okay, I really like that. You, you spoke in the article about it's critical to start with defining your external metric and especially when you think of this in sprints so you have exactly. your external metric that you're trying to solve and then you define some internal issues that you're going to try and fix along the way and then you set a sprint for that 
And then you go through that and then you see what data comes out at the end of that. That's it's really structured way about going through your design process. I really like that. Yeah. And, and what's going to, what's going to really help in this, maybe, you know, pushing on the, the product management side of things a little bit more, but it will help with prioritization a lot because when, when it comes time, when, you know, you're doing your estimations and, and maybe something's coming out and saying, well, you know, this feature is going to take, um, you know, I don't know, four days and it seems, you know, that that uh, and you have to decide what's important and what's going to make it in and what isn't. You can always refer back to your um, your, your metrics. Um, now, there's there's something I think you know we should always remember is that choosing the right solution is not something that is easily researched. Um, to put it that way, you can test usability, you can test clarity, you can test whether a user can get through a flow, but whether the first the solution you decided on in the first place was the best out of all of them. And, and whether it's going to solve your problem, you know that that is a that is going to that's always going to be a risk. You could potentially use focus groups, you know, if you're if you're rolling in the money. But um, I think that is that is ultimately your um, your your biggest leap of faith is going to be saying, I have a, a set of solutions on the table. Let me examine each one of them and say, well, how how likely do I think this is uh, to solve the problem? Assuming it's perfectly usable. Assuming if I told the user. You know, here's a set of tasks, and they executed it perfectly. You know, assuming that was perfect, this this feature is gonna you know move the needle on my internal metric. This feature is gonna move the needle. And if you prioritize like that, you'll often find that you're you feel much better about cutting certain features and potentially taking um, like MVP approaches to uh, to to features that um, that are maybe less important. Okay, I think that's really cool. I think it's a really practical way about uh, identifying issues in your product. Now you can solve them. Um, I'd just like to re-clarify though, how do you go about deciding on your external metrics? What is that like silver bullet that you're looking for? Because there'll be many things you could be focusing on. Yeah, so so I think the the ultimate one is you want to you wanna think about it like a, so I think in the article I mentioned it, it's kind of like a, a waterfall of, um, you know, mm. of metrics. And you can imagine at the very, very top of every business would be, uh, would be profit. And um, like, even if you're a, even if you're a charity, you know, there, there are certain things that you care about, which, which results um, in money and money spent. Um, so you can always imagine profits always at the top. And, um, you know, um, that being said, we can kind of ignore that and go one level down from that. So I think the first place you should start is first look at um, which, which are the key metrics in your business that is driving profit. So for every business, it will be different for, for, you know, a, a pure platform application will be might be daily active users it might be retention maybe the longer cool. you use the platform the more profit you make or maybe it's a um you know maybe it's a, a, a kind of once-off purchase which is then you know conversion is a very very important metric to you um so you're, you're kind of going in stages so you're saying profit and then one down from profit you know what is that layer um, when we speak about product and then you go one layer down from that so you say well let's look at conversion like what is what is important to conversion well we could say, okay, there are four steps in our in, in our conversion flow, and um, so the conversion on each one of those steps would be an internal metric, essentially. Um, so you, I think you you kind of want to work back from from profit, assuming you have the power to make that decision. Often that decision comes from um, you know your your head of product or or maybe a um, you know a stakeholder who says you know I want to focus on um, you know our growth or I want to focus on our retention. Um, you know that that often comes from the top, but if you are in the position to make that decision, I would say start at profit, work your way down, and just um, you know you if you have access to data, look at which which one of those big metrics 
or mo mo is most closely correlated to uh, to profit, and also which ones are the worst? Because if if something's already at you know if you have like a sixty percent conversion on your funnel, like the odds of you actually making that better might be might be really difficult. So I think it's a comparison of go down the the stack, go down the stack, and then also look at the things that you feel confident you can change, or look at the things that um, is not maybe in a good good place at the moment. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think a follow up question after that is business always questions the value of, of UX. There's never enough budget and you always have to convince the value of design. I think this is where the power of metrics comes in. How do you suggest that user experience designers illustrate this return on investment uh, through metrics in their designs when meeting with stakeholders? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so this is, this is a big one. Um, so I think often the, the, the subjectivity of design starts, you know, um, like skewing the view of, of whether something is valuable because people talk about visual design and what things look like. Um, so one way I've, I've found that this, this really, really works is it's obviously through the power of metrics and I'll get into that in a bit, just a bit, but, um, at the current company I'm at and, um, and the company I was before, um, we structured our, um, uh, we structured our, our work into two week sprints, uh, essentially as, as designers as well. Um, trying to run ahead of dev. But what was important in those two weeks is that we just are laser focused on the problem we solve. And once you communicate that to business up front, so you tell them the problem we want to solve is this, and here is our rationale. This is why we want to go about you know solving this problem as a squad. Once you once you have that problem outlined and you've told business this is the metric, this is the key success metric for this project, when you when you go about that sprint, you know, two weeks later, you output you output your design. You maybe show them um, some things, um, and then two to three weeks later, you'll start seeing the effects of what what it is that you're doing. You'll 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 be able mm -hmm. to tell whether it's a fluctuation, just a random fluctuation in the data, or whether it's an actual change, a significant change you've made. Um, and there there are tools to do that. Um, and I would I would suggest everyone um, who is a designer, um, you know, go and go and look at some um, you know super super basic statistics courses. And I'll, and I'll get more into that later. I, I think you have some questions for me on cool. that. Um, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, I think the idea here is that set the expectations of business upfront, um, and then and then make sure you're laser focused on what you are trying to solve. Anything that doesn't um, you know come into the domain of what you what you're trying to solve, cut it. Because what's going to happen is when you when you keep on showing that focus, I think business feels completely justified in spending money because they see you're solving real problems and you know, you are laser mm. focused on those problems. Because I think once design starts getting really wide, like oh, you know, we spent three days on this illustration, um, which which are important, um, it often it often comes across as well. You know, could this time have been better spent? And I think that's kind of where this thing is born of. You know, what is the ROI of design? Um, so I think as, as long as you're laser focused on, on the problem, um, you know, people generally uh, take it well. Okay, that's perfect. What we're essentially talking about here is performance metrics. So we're, we're measuring how the product's performing over time. How, how do you, in your mind, compare performance metrics to user satisfaction metrics like net promoter score, customer effort score, and customer satisfaction score? How, how do you kind of use the two to assess your product yeah so so i think a, a a perfect way to get a 
get a nice um, kind of finger on your pulse for your customer is is always surveys. Um, so that's that's not one here, but but just you know sending out mm. a survey because it, it's a big enough sample size. You can ask some qualitative questions. You ask them about how they feel and things like that, mm. and you can you can bring in that data if you want to keep your finger on the pulse. In terms of these specific ones you've mentioned, I think the easiest or uh, well, the best one is probably customer satisfaction score. And and the reason I say that is because mm. it's often four or five stars or star ratings or referrals they often don't map to the real world for every specific case so for example if you know if i'm trying to um yeah, if i'm designing a an, an internal software for let's say investment bankers you know um the, the net promoter score is um you know is out because you can you're talking about referral um so you could probably come up with a different type of net promoter score but then it might be you know better to go to customer effort score but what is this what is a three out of five you know what is what is a four out of five um so mm. i think the the customer satisfaction score when you're just going thumbs up thumbs down um and then saying thumbs up over the number of customers that is your satisfaction score it's easy to collect because it's it's low effort you just say was this useful yes done um where um, i think the other ones I think there's a little bit of a match, match, mismatch um, between reality and the product, depending on which industry you're mm. in. So I was speaking about B2B now specifically, but in B2C, you know, um, if your product is, for example, the one we have at Stairway as an example, which is um, uh, which is a learning product, hopefully um, going, I'm trying to inspire the next generation of STEM learners. Um, this learning product uh, is useful to someone and then we want them to recommend it to somebody else. So that that um, net promoter score suddenly becomes very, very um, uh, applicable to our situation. So I think um, it's it's the, the answer is it depends, but I think the, the quickest and easiest one to implement within your organization, I would say, is the customer satisfaction score. It's quick. And then in terms of the, um, the net promoter and customer effort, that's a situational. You know, it might work for you, it might not. I guess it sounds to me like these user satisfaction scores are useful for kind of setting your direction, just sort of testing whether you're, you're doing the right thing. And if mm -hmm. overall your product's performing well, whereas these performance metrics that we're talking about is great for inner tuning. So making sure almost like your user satisfaction is your rudder and your performance metrics are your tweaking to make sure that everything is working well. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, you're, you're always trying to make your customers happy. Right. And, and I think that the, mm. um, I do think that sometimes your your happiness could show in in usage. You know, if more people are using the app, mm. if they're retaining, if they're doing the the if if their uh, if the behaviors are happening that you are hoping for them to happen, and um, you know you mm. could assume that you're succeeding and, and and it's it's useful to customers. But I often think that the sentiment about your product that is a difficult one to get. You know, whether mm. whether people think you're the best in the market, whether people think you are. It's, it's a quick and easy product or do people think it's like a super professional product? Like what is the sentiment that the market is expressing for your, your product? Um, you know, if you, if you ask maybe the general market uh, about TikTok, you know, people will say, oh, it's for high school kids or it's, you know, it's, it's for youth. Um, you know, and that sentiment is, is something that, you know, could, could uh, definitely um, change the way you design it, the kind of language you use. And also, if you decide to to, to target an, a, a bigger, wider market, you know, your, your designs might try to be more mature. Um, so I think that there's there's this the, the sentiment part. That's a that's a tricky one to get with numbers. Um, but I think you know you want to combine you want to combine qualitative and quantitative 
and, and all of your efforts because there is a mm. um, both of them have value um, but in different ways but i would i would echo that like every net promoter score customer effort score customer satisfaction score these were all you know people coming up with ideas on how you know how to do these things and i would i would i would encourage anyone to when you are facing a dilemma where you want to know what your customers are feeling about your product or you know whether they think something was useful to them I would I would encourage you to sit down and kind of think through exactly what it is that you what what kind of question is it that you're that you're hoping to ask, um yeah and 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 just kind of think through it yourself as well and then and, and see if one of these tools map to kind of what you're thinking and if they don't you know take out a pen and paper and create your own um but as as long as there is a cognitive effort to go like we are thinking about this you know it's not you know. We you know we read an article somewhere and now we're implementing it because the person in the article said it you know it's like sit down mm-hmm. what is your situation how is how what is it that you're trying to find out what is it that you're trying to learn from your audience maybe is it it's it's as simple as you know uh, sending an email to your database asking them um, you know the, what what was the last time they remember using the product you know what stood out to them in that last session and you know would they recommend it and then you get those results back and then. You know, you do that once-off survey, and that ca- carries you for the next quarter or, or so. It depends on your company. It depends on the size and and, and what you can do at that point. Your your capabilities. One of the sort of arguments that was going around is whether designers should learn to code. And now that we're talking about data sciences, do you think that designers should be learning data science? And where do you think data science sits within the designers' toolkit? Yeah. So. Um, so my answer is no, short answer. Um, but but let me let me tell you the long answer, right? So <laughs> so one of the things that I um, that I experienced, um, and and I'll kind of use an analogy again. Um, I was talking about doctors earlier. Now I'm going to talk about COVID nineteen. Um, so mm. you know, so we when if I want you to imagine, I kind of stood up, right? And and maybe there's a crowd of people. And I said, you know, if you get COVID nineteen. You are two point four to four percent, um, you know, likely to um, for it to be fatal, you know. Um, I think every like most people in that crowd would be like, wait, well, hold on, you know, it, it depends on your age, right? You know, if you're older, then you know you're you're gonna um, you're more likely for it to be fatal, and um, and that and that's quite interesting because you know that information was given to us by stati- statisticians, but it radically changes the way we approach. Like everything we do, you know, we don't go to our grandparents' house uh, likely because, you know, we, we put them at great risk. And because of that one piece of information, it's um, if uh, given um, what is the fatality rate given your age, right? Just that extra piece of information suddenly changes the entire landscape uh, of what um, of what of, of how you behave, the things that you do. Um, and I want you to kind of, you know, put that in context of businesses. You know, maybe some head of a department stands up and says, you know, um, there is 10% more this this month or there is a correlation between this and this, right? And they would say that and, and you know, we'd all be, um, we, we'd all take it as truth. We'd kind of go like, yes, yeah, that's cool. Um, and I think what this illustrates is how easy it is to, you know, to, to be wrong in like, it's the difference between a 4% fatality rate and a, I think it was 48% fatality rate if you're if you're over the age of 75. That is a gigantic difference in in, in statistics, right? So I think what mm. where the where the power of this comes in is that it's so so easy to be uh, to make a mistake in statistics and to to not 
slice the data in a way that is uh, representative of the question you are trying to answer. And and I think this is is this kind of where where it comes in where I would say this is what I would expect from um, designers product designers who are looking into analytics. If that's not part of your role, you know by all means you don't have to. But if you are taking data and you're showing it back to the organization, I would say go to Khan Academy or you know one of these courses. It's all free and go do the statistics AP module. Um, it's basically first year statistics. Go do that module. You know. Um, and, and let that be just a, a bit of um, like fundamental statistics and things that you should remember. And, um, and it, it's so easy to make a mistake that um, I think it's something that we should have in our toolbox for analysis. But in terms of the other part, you know, um, being able to do data science, when, when, when I say data science, I mean machine learning models and, um, you know, AI potentially, uh, if you... Um, if you want to go all the way to kind of the the, the, the far reaches of, of uh, machine learning and data science. Um, I don't think it's necessary for us to um, to know it, to know how to do it. I think it's I think it's necessary for us to understand the the outline of what is possible. And the reason this is is because when you think about how we design products and when we reach for something like, oh, I'm gonna use a form to capture the data and the person's gonna press a button and that's going to go to the back end. We, we as designers have a mental model of how software works, which means that never in, in the design process do we ever think, hey, maybe there's a, you know, maybe there's a machine learning solution that, that could you know, radically change this product or, or um, you know, advance the, the way that uh, people interact with this product because, because it's not within our scope of knowledge, right? You don't go... Oh, you know, what can I do with a classification um, algorithm here? What can I do with a regression here? You don't. We don't think like that because it's it's a it's a deep field that is very devoid of what we do. And as the world evolves mm. closer and closer to um, you know using machine learning in pretty much every single product you will use, um, you know, I, I think the designers would be well equipped to just know the basics of what is possible in machine learning as we stand. Just so that it's part of their thinking, you know, they go, you know, could I automate this? Could could a could a computer predict this value for me, or could could a computer find a relationship between these two values, and tell the mm. user, you know, this is this is a good decision or this is a bad decision, or predict for the user what the next decision that they should make is? You know, imagine you were using Figma, and um, you know, it says to you that this this button is the color is too dull. You should you should spice it up, otherwise this layout's not going to work. You know that's something machine learning could do, but as the designer mm. of Figma, you might not you know, might not think about it because it's not in your it's not in your toolbox, right? So I think those are the two mm. two ways I think that designers could introduce data science into their worlds, um, is being better at anal analyzing data, making sure that you are being uh, truthful to yourself at least. You know when you're um, when you're looking at your data. Because I, I think a lot of people massage the data when we put it on presentations, right? Um, mm. so, yeah, so being truthful when you are looking at data, knowing that you're asking a, a good question and you're, and you're answering it correctly through the uh, techniques you're using to, to, to grab that data. And then on top of that, knowing what's possible these days, because it, it literally is like black magic. Um, it's, um, it's very impressive. Um, and, and look, I am not, I'm not a full-fledged data scientist yet. I'm still studying. I'm still getting better at it. Um, I had a I had a great mentor who who showed me some of the ropes, but um, but there is amazing things you can do with uh, machine learning, and um, and I and I think it's useful to all products uh, if you can if you can come up with a creative way of using it. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's okay. I think it's useful. 
Okay, that's fantastic. You you mentioned uh, a Khan Academy course. Are there any other resources that you'd recommend to designers who are listening to this and are thinking, actually, this is a niche that I can see myself moving into, and I would start solving these large external metrics whilst thinking of machine learning internal metrics. Um, what would you recommend? Yeah, so so there's a lot of a lot of people would kind of reach for courses immediately, go like, oh, I want to do this course. But I think what I would what I would recommend is, um, and I'll and I'll send it through to you, Jonathan, so you can add it to the link. But there's five mm. five machine learning challenges, which um, is a good place to start for anyone, and a good place to do them mm. is on on a platform called Kaggle. Now, Kaggle is a platform owned by Google, where you can basically create your your notebooks. Um, so that's kind of coding your data, um, cleaning it up, doing all of your your basically your data science within the browser itself. Um, and running against cool. data sets, they have they have hundreds of thousands of data sets. They have competitions um, for predicting things, and there's five specific challenges that every data scientist should go through. The first one is um, predicting who's going to die on the Titanic, um, based on where they're <laughs> sitting, um, you know, um, their their gender, their it's all sorts of things. You get like a whole data set, and basically the challenge is to predict um, who's likely to die and who's likely not to die. Um, great challenge it teaches you a lot um, second one is Boston house prices regression which teaches you how to predict the price of a house um, in Boston because there's loads and loads of data in America um, then there's a computer vision one which is you know um, drawing a character on a screen and then predicting which character it is so is it an 8 is it a B is it a C um, then there's another one which is a um, just trying to get all of them uh, there's a re- reinforced learning one which is um where you, where you train an agent, um, I think it's, yeah, you train an agent to complete a task. Um, and I, I could not remember the fifth one, but I will I will send you those links. And then what I would suggest awesome. doing is try that first one, the Titanic challenge. You're going to start and you're going to be like, I don't know what to do. And I would suggest the first thing you do, look up some YouTube videos of people solving that problem. You know, follow the tutorial, kind of hit a wall again, look for a different video, but really get your hands dirty. Um, because the I think the trick for for working with statistics and working with data science is really just sitting down and thinking a lot. You sit down, you look at it, you go, how do I make this accurate, more accurate? How do I how do I improve this data? Maybe I can clean it up better. Maybe I can make better inferences. So I would say uh, that's a good place to to kind of get your hands dirty with data science. But if if you're if we're still a bit rusty on statistics. Khan Academy is, is, is an amazing place for that. And if you if you want to brush up on your high school statistics, I would suggest going to the, the company I currently work for, Stairway Learning. So I'm just obviously going to plug that in there. Um, so that, that's basically high school statistics, which you know is a great way of recapping that if you're um, if you're interested. Um, but Khan Academy has specifically called AP statistics, which is a kind of a higher level statistics where they go into estimation and they go into hypothesis testing and things like that, which is basically how do you how do you, uh, for certain, say that this there was an improvement in these numbers? So that's a great example of of something you can use in your everyday, where you go, you know, did did the thing I did make a change that is significant, or was it just a random fluctuation? You know, you can use and there's there's um, formulas and processes for being able to discern that and and be sure that you did in fact make a meaningful difference. Okay. I think in addition to these resources, you are an incredible resource, and in like, I just want to let the listeners know, like Zandra is incredibly accessible on LinkedIn. Like I messaged him and very quickly he got back to me. So um, if people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way that they can reach out to you and ask you questions and invite you to speak 
at conferences and that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, I'm super open to that. Um, I enjoy talking to people, um, you know, especially now in isolation. Um, good conversation is hard to come by. Um, so yeah, drop me a message on LinkedIn. Um, it's a great place. You can even message me on Twitter, which I'm not as active about um, on right now. But I will become more active as as um, as I as the move to UK kind of wraps up. Um, but yeah, please, mm. LinkedIn's probably the best. Um, I'm on there quite a bit. Um, yeah, that's it. Wonderful, Sandra, you're an absolute legend. I really appreciate you making the time, and you've like this is super meaty, and I think it's really practical. And I think it's going to influence how a lot of people approach the beginning stages of their project and also the stakeholder feedback sessions in the future. It's definitely going to influence how I work. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you making the time to come on the show. Thank you, Jonathan. And, and thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you learned something from this episode and would like to hear more episodes in the future, please subscribe and consider leaving a comment so that other people can find this content. If you have any questions and would like me to answer them on an upcoming episode, go into the show notes where you can find a link to my Twitter page where you can ask me any questions that you have or even leave a voice note using the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to keep the user right where they should be first. <laughs>